Welcome back to NL Newsday here on this Monday, February the 8th. Of course, it is the first day of the week. So as per usual, pleased to welcome to the show now my Monday guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks as always for the time. Now, I wanted to start here by talking about the situation that's kind of unfolding right now in Kitimat. It was first kind of brought to my attention a couple of weeks ago when it was sort of briefly touched on during the provincial um, COVID-19 news that was being held where Adrian Dix mentioned the uh, situation where a, a baby had died um, after an incident at a Kitimat hospital. So I'll just do a little background here for, if people are unfamiliar, but a Kitimat family demanding answers amid allegations the local hospital turned a pregnant First Nations woman away who later delivered a stillborn baby. Now, the woman was about two weeks overdue when she went to Kitimat General Hospital with steady contractions, but was instead redirected to Mills Memorial Hospital in Terrace. It's alleged that the hospital also did not offer her transportation, leaving a family member to drive her the 60 kilometers to the neighboring community. Eventually, there was some uh, other talk about an ambulance that picked her up and then drove her back to the Kitimat Hospital hospital, um, despite the fact that she had already been told not to come back there. So there's a whole bunch of bizarre things that came out surrounding this story. Um, but obviously the, the big thing here is in relation to um, allegations of racism. So I wanted to start by just getting your, your thoughts here, Kyla, that, you know, it sounds to me like this isn't a new issue for the Kitimat Hospital, and there's probably a number of instances that have occurred in history in British Columbia where cases like this uh, would definitely have some merit in viewing and looking a little bit deeper into potential racist allegations at hospitals. I think, you know, you and I have talked before about the report that came out about discriminatory practices against Indigenous people in, in BC's healthcare service. And, and I think this is a, a perfect example of a potential incident that was discriminatory. Obviously, we have no uh, specific information yet as to why uh, this woman was turned away from one hospital and told to go to another while she was in the middle of labor. Um, but whatever that reason was, um, it certainly raises significant concerns that there was some discrimination going on. And I would expect, especially in a northern community with a very high Indigenous population like Kitimat, uh, that this is not the first time something like this has happened. And I worry that it's not going to be last. And, I mean, it's really difficult to hear these stories at any point in time, but we're also not very far removed from, what was it, November, when the B.C. government apologized for anti-Indigenous racism within the healthcare system. So for an investigation that took several months to complete and, you know, was uh, the, the big news story out of that uh, particular report, right, was the uh, guessing of blood alcohol levels in Indigenous patients. But just, you know, we're so narrowly removed from that report and then we're seeing more allegations of racism in a hospital in, in northern BC. I imagine that there's got to be some real tension in the healthcare system and, and within our ministry as a result of seeing these kinds of things. I mean, what is the potential for, I guess, legal ramifications if if there is deemed to be, you know, some, some racial concerns at play here? Well, if, if the reason that this woman was turned away from the hospital had to do with her being Indigenous, then you know, the hospital and, and the BC government um, could be sued uh, for uh, discrimination. She could file a human rights complaint. And this is likely the type of case that would attract a very large human rights award. Um, you know, we've seen trends towards bigger awards now um, for human rights violations because people haven't been getting the message and, and racism is be, be still as rampant as it ever 
has been. Um, so, you know, there's a potential for a human rights award against the hospital and against the staff member personally uh, who discriminated against this individual if discrimination did occur. Um, but hopefully, I mean, the bigger question is what's the hospital going to do to change things so that something like this doesn't happen in the future? Mm-hmm. And this is the type of situation where hospital staff need to be taking sensitivity training. They need to be retrained on, on cultural competence. And these are the types of steps that are necessary as part of any reconciliation and action plan that every business should have in place as of now. Does uh, a loss of life like we're talking about in this particular situation with a stillborn child, does that make a big difference in how the case, if a case were to proceed, does that change things considerably in, in how it's kind of looked at, uh, you know, from the from the BC court's point of view? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's different um, considerations that apply in circumstances of wrongful death, and there are limitations on how much money you can collect for wrongful death. But uh, because this involves the loss of a life of a child while the mother is in labor, if there was something that was done wrong here that that was discriminatory that led to this child losing its life and the mother losing the child that she's trying to give birth to, you know, I think you could see a very large punitive damages of Board given against the hospital, potentially against the staff member personally, against the BC government for failing to take appropriate action in a timely fashion, particularly with the background of that report having just been released. Is there potential when, when looking at these types of, of situations? Because, you know, we're talking specifically about a very, you know, direct instance, but if there are, and especially I've seen even, you know, in relation and follow-up to this particular case where uh, there's been other allegations of racism against this particular hospital, I guess, there, is there a lot of potential for a class action in, in something like this? Is there, you know, some way that we could see multiple parties getting involved if it is, you know, similar allegations directed against one particular facility? If there are similar allegations directed against a particular facility that have led to negative health care outcomes for numerous people and there is a pattern of similar conduct, then a class action would be a possibility. It would still have to be certified by a judge and there would have to be sufficient similarities between the interactions. It can't just be like, you know, somebody being turned away while they're in labor, another person being called a discriminatory name. There would have to be enough similarity to link them so that you could identify who is properly a member of the class for the class action. Okay. Well, uh, it's a sad case, a very sad case, and I really hope we get some more answers to it because there's still a lot of questions definitely surrounding that case, and it'll be interesting to see uh, if any legal action is taken as a result. Um, Kyla, what was considered a first for Canadian courts, the Provincial Court of BC, mandating a procedure that asks lawyers to indicate the pronouns they want used when introducing themselves and their clients in court. The mandate is meant to allow for a court system that is more inclusive of those who identify as non-binary. Now, with that being said, I guess there was a bit of a debate over the weekend amongst uh, lawyer Twitter that uh, this is a practice that should not be uh, moving forward within BC courts. I guess, uh, what was the the argument that was happening here, I guess, in this particular situation? What was the the person who was you know, adamant that this was something that they didn't like. What was their concern with with having you know the pronouns identified prior to to court really getting in full session? 
Well, to start to start off, I'll say to my mind, there's no debate here. We should be respectful of other people, and that includes referring to them with pronouns that they identify as. Um, it's it's the most basic level of decency you can provide to another person. But um, some lawyers have taken the view that uh, compelling somebody to use your pronouns in court and compelling people to state on the record what their pronouns are amounts to compelled speech and is a violation of their charter rights in court. It's no different, in my opinion, than saying you have to call the judge your honor, or you have to call opposing counsel my friend, or when you start the proceeding, you have to introduce yourself for the court record. All of these things are done. There are all sorts of instances in court where you're compelled to say certain things as part of the process. None of them are held against you. None of them impact the ultimate outcome of the case. They're just part of the protest process that's followed in court because the court has a great deal of power to control its own process by coming up with these rules and directives. So the debate really, in this case, was about whether or not this was compelled speech. And in my opinion, it's not. And I guess just for those who are hearing this for the first time, I guess, what does this process look like? I mean, have you had to go through this here in 2021 so far to uh, to, to start a court proceeding? And, and I guess just what happens? How does this work? It's very simple. When you walk into court and you introduce yourself, you ordinarily, prior to the practice direction, you would say, I'm Kyla Lee, L-E-E, initial K. I'm appearing as counsel for, you know, Mr. So-and-so here. And, and that would be it. Now you say, I'm Kyla Lee, L-E-E, initial K. My pronouns are she, her, and my form of address is Ms. So it's pretty straightforward, doesn't really change a whole lot, adds, you know, five seconds to what you were saying prior to getting things underway and really shouldn't be much of a debate, honestly. It's something that I guess someone just doesn't like change out there, right? That's pretty much all we're seeing. Um, You know, it's pretty sad, honestly, that there's a debate about that at all. It is very sad. And, you know, it's, it's disappointing because the whole purpose behind this was to make people who are who are trans and who are non-binary and people who maybe their gender doesn't accord with the way that they present feel more comfortable in a courtroom so they don't get misgendered. Mm-hmm. And it, it just to me seems like somebody's looking for a way to get away with misgendering another person, which why do you need to do that? There's no legitimate purpose behind doing that. Kyla, as always, appreciate the time. Hopefully, uh, you know, these silly arguments don't uh, don't take up too much of your time, but interesting that they do and still need to be had here in 2021. Thanks so much, Kyla. As always, appreciate it, and we'll catch up again next week. Thank you for having me. All right, anytime, Kyla. That is Acumen Laws. Kyla Lee, always appreciate her insight. Uh, I do think that uh, case, though, in uh, in Kitimat is going to be an interesting one to follow and see if any further action is taken.